my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you guys are having a fantastic week. Uh, great show today. I was joined by my friend Jim Garrity from National Review. It's always a great time talking to Jim, one of my favorite guests. Uh, we talked all things Supreme Court. Is it going to be Amy Coney Barrett? Uh, should the GOP Senate vote to confirm before the election? All this and more. Um, before I get to Jim, guys, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or Spotify. Uh, if you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate it. And if you, if you like what you're hearing and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. All right. Without further ado, here's my chat with the great Jim Garrity. All right, guys, we're here with my friend Jim Garrity from National Review. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time, brother. No, thank you for having me on, Brady. Absolutely, man. It's always a pleasure. So everybody knows uh, uh, what we're discussing today. Um, you know, it's not a mystery. But before we get to the latest news on the president's forthcoming Supreme Court pick, uh, I want to talk about the debate happening on the right right now, at least in the, you know, the, the punditry class. Um, some folks, including your, your former colleagues, Jonah Goldberg and David French, uh, Brett Stevens at The New York Times as well, um, are advocating that the GOP does not confirm a justice. Um, they're advocating that the president should nominate somebody, the Senate should hold off on a vote until after the election, and if Trump loses, um, the GOP should try to make a deal with the Democrats where they leave the seat open in return for some kind of promise from Joe Biden not to pack the Supreme Court. Okay, so I have I have about a million reasons <laughs> why uh, that's patently insane. Uh, but before we get into all of it, what what's your initial take on a proposal like this? Sure. Uh, before I begin the process of poo-pooing what uh, Jonah and David and and Brett Stevens put forward, let me you know I, I don't really know Brett Stevens, but. Uh, Jonah, I think of as my metaphorical big brother at National Review. Uh, David's always going to rank amongst my all-time favorite colleagues and or former colleagues and writers. And you know, everything I say is said with great respect. Um, that having been said, I do want to uh, you know flip out, kind of like Lin Manuel Miranda in Hamilton, and say, "You have to be out of your mind uh, to propose something like this." In part because, uh, first of all, the question is, would Democrats actually attempt to pack the court? The court has had nine justices for 151 years. When Joe Biden was asked about this back in July of last year, he said, no, we would quickly quickly rue the day we did that. Joe Biden seems to understand that once one party decides to start packing the court, the other party can do so. And in case you're wondering, well, what does it take to increase the number of seats on the Supreme Court? It was an act of Congress back 151 years ago, and it's basically late, you know, that that law has been in effect since then. The one time there was effort to increase it was back during Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency. He'd been reelected. The Supreme Court had been striking down various provisions of the New Deal, and he was irritated by this. So he wanted to add up to six justices for each justice that was over a certain age. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt was, you know, near the apex, exceptionally popular at that time. And the country, by and large, 
just just recoiled and said, no, <laughs> no, this is this is completely blowing up the concept of separation of powers and balancing the power within the three branches of government. Uh, this is not something you get to do. This is you know quasi dictatorial. Uh, and a whole bunch of people who were fans of Franklin Roosevelt just flat out thought he was wrong on that. Franklin Roosevelt lost a lot of political capital that way. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to believe that if Joe Biden proposed this, it would go better for him than it went for Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, so the first question is, you know, could Democrats do this? But various other Democrats besides Biden have said, uh, Dianne Feinstein for one, have said, no, 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 we're not doing court packing. We're not expanding the size of the court. Now, fairly recently, Joe Biden was asked about it again in an interview with, uh, I think it was a Wisconsin television station. And he said, that's a legitimate question, but I'm not going to answer it because it would create a distraction. Right, right. Well, wait a second. Like, wait, you just admitted it's a legitimate question. You know, it's a distract from what? You know, if American people aren't allowed to know whether you're going to do whether you're going to do this, why? You know, that's like the worst possible answer. If you want to do it, then do it. If you don't want to do it, then say you don't want to do it and explain why. If you do, but you're afraid it'll be unpopular, this is just about the worst possible way to go about this. So, and oh, by the way, I concur with the assessment of my boss, Rich Lowry, that. Democrat attempt to expand the size of the, of the Supreme Court because they're not getting things the way they want would be a much more destructive to our concept of norms and the concept of the rules of how our government operates than anything Trump has done. So that's where that leads. I, first, I don't know if Democrats would actually do this. I think they have a very hard time doing this. I think if they did this, say, in the first couple of years of a Biden presidency, they'd probably pay a very serious consequence in the midterms. And oh, by the way, we're kind of in this historical pattern where the first midterm after a president is elected generally turns out to be a real smack in the face and his party usually hurt, you know, loses seats in the House and Senate and such. So I don't you know, in a way you're saying, Democrats, please don't do this thing that would probably blow up in your face and that probably wouldn't work anyway. If I'm a Republican, I don't really have any incentive to, to you know, part of me is almost like, no, I, I dare you. <laughs> Go ahead and try that. Actually, I don't. I would not dare them and I don't want them to try that. I think the very effort of it would be harmful to our faith in government and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, so I don't think they're going to do that. The second thing is, look, under the Constitution, the president has the authority to nominate whoever he wants. You know, Scalia died. Obama nominated uh, Merrick Garland. I'm among those folks who think Merrick Garland should have gotten a hearing. Uh, I agree. I, I totally but, agree. You know, yeah. That was the part where Democrats have the fairest complaint. Oh, here's the thing. Merrick Garland, they could have held hearings. He would have answered, you know, uh, how he would have answered all the questions. And Republican senators could have said, well, you know, Merrick Garland, you seem like a fine judge. You seem like a fine person. But I just don't like your judicial philosophy. I just don't think you're going to rule the way I think you should rule on these various issues that are important. And as a result of that, uh, you are now um, I'm voting against you. And they could have done that, and they could have repeated that for any nominee that Obama put forward. Because let's face it, at that point, the Senate had 54 Republicans and 46 Democrats, and you were not going to get four Republican senators to vote to replace Antonin Scalia with Merrick Garland or really anybody else that Obama could have nominated short of someone who's really kind of the opposite of who Barack Obama would have wanted on that court. Right. Um, here we are in a situation where, look, you know, the president has the authority to nominate this, and the Senate has the authority to consider them. They could do the, well, we're not going to, we'll wait until after the election. Republicans have chosen not to. If you want to call them hypocritical, fine. But I think most Republicans would say, you know what, the stakes are too high. Uh, my colleague Dan McLaughlin has a really good piece on our homepage today, making the argument that the Supreme Court is worth it. <laughs> the Supreme Court is 
what you get into politics for. This is what the Republican Party's purpose in life is. And if they're not willing to have this fight here and now for what kind of justice they go. Oh, by the way, this all comes after Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, yeah. Where the overwhelming majority of Republicans believe that Senate Democrats went beyond. I oppose this justice. I don't like their judicial philosophy. I don't think they're going to rule the right way on these issues that are important to me. To just, just trying to destroy his reputation. And you know, even if you don't if you feel the way about Christine Blasey Ford, the kooky stories about, you know, orgies in Georgetown and everything that uh, that uh, that slimeball lawyer was involved in and, and all that. It just was a sort of thing where it got way out of control. It was well beyond the pale. And most Republicans are just not in a mood to chat. If the Kavanaugh fight hadn't gone that way, maybe these sorts of ideas from Jonah and David would get have a, a warmer reception. But, uh, I think that's exactly. I think that's the bottom line, isn't it, Jim? I, I think because that, that's exactly where I'm at on this issue. I mean, to, to to think this is a good idea to make a deal like this. First, you have to assume that the Democrats are acting in good faith in regards to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And I remember the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, I remember what they tried to do to that man and his family on national television in the name of raw political power. Okay, and you also have to assume that uh, I mean, you took the the, that's why I love you, Jim. You took the rational approach that they probably won't actually be able to pack the Supreme Court or probably blow up in their face. But I'm just taking their threat at face value. You know, you'd you'd have to assume that Joe Biden is the true leader of the party and will shape the Democratic Party moving forward. Now, 60 percent of voters believe that Joe Biden wouldn't finish a full term if elected. Okay, and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. you see kind of. Joe Biden finger in the wind kind of thing, moving leftward and rightward, you know, wherever he thinks the, the party is moving. I really don't think he's the, the ideological center of, of the party. Um, and, and you'd have to assume that even if Biden made a deal like this, one, he wouldn't just be lying anyway. And two, that the radicals in his party would accept the deal as well moving forward, that a Kamala Harris, if she became president, would would hold true to that deal. And you'd also have to believe that giving into blackmail is a smart strategy politically. Yeah. I mean, like they, these these people have promised to add D.C. and Puerto Rico as states to permanently swing power in Washington to the Democrats to destroy the U.S. Senate, right? <laughs> to eliminate yeah. the filibuster, to pack the courts. It's like the, these threats are, are are specifically designed to scare us into submission, and it's kind of disappointing that at least in in terms of some people on the right, it's working. Yeah. So, you know, first is, you know, I guess the, the, the argument comes a little too uncomfortably close to, but this time, if we negotiate with terrorists, it'll work out. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know? And most of us just aren't convinced of that. You know, there's a lot to go through here. But you're right, the first thing is uh, every time the Democrats have tried to change the rules in a way that they think will benefit for them, at least in recent memory, it tends to blow up in their face, probably most notably blowing up the filibuster for Lower court judges, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, I believe I remember him standing on the floor and said, you will regret this. And, of course, <laughs> then Cocaine Mitch and or the Apex Predator. The Apex other, Predator. <laughs> the alleged insult that keeps making Mitch McConnell sounds cooler. Uh, but then, lo and behold, once Democrats had established the filibuster was not necessary for some kinds of judges, they didn't really have a very strong argument when they said, well, no, no, the, the filibuster should stay in place for these other kinds of judges. This is, you know. It's okay when we feel, you know, Barack Obama filibusters Samuel Alito. And then once he became president, he talked about how terrible the filibuster was at blocking these judges. You know, most of us have memories of this. Because like, wait a second, you did this. You did this back in 2006. And you said that, you know, now Obama's running around the country and saying it's a Jim Crow era holdover. And, oh, oh, the filibuster's terrible. 
well, look, if it was good enough for you back then, it's good enough for this year. Oh, by the way, Democrats keep using the filibuster to stop various pieces of legislation like the latest you know, COVID relief bill and things like that. So, and, and Senator Tim Scott's criminal justice reform yeah. bill. Yeah, well, well, you know, oh, then it's then it's okay to use the Jim Crow holdover, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, so that look, that's where we are. That the second thing is that the, all across the Democratic Party, not just in your average frothing at the mouth, wide-eyed activists, but even amongst the you know law professors, and, you know, people who are you know distinguished columnists, and people who are supposed to be the smarter minds of this, have suddenly gotten. This, you know, consumed with this idea of if I don't win, the system is unjust. That the measuring stick of whether a system is fair and rational and uh, well organized, the way things ought to be, entirely aligns with whether I get with what I what I want. And that is, I find this less frequently on the right, although certainly it has its uh, this attitude has its adherents on our side. Right. I go. You know, why, why, why does every state get two senators regardless of population? Well, going back to the founding, the small states were afraid that the big states were going to throw their weight around. The small states were never going to have any influence. So when people say, how is it that Wyoming has the same number of senators as California? That's the way it's supposed to be. It's deliberately designed that way, that every state has equal representation on the Senate side. And on the House side, it's done by population, and that's how it shakes out that way. But although, you notice, by the way, Brady, you never see the example, how is it that Delaware has as many representatives as Texas <laughs> in, in the Senate? Well, because they're all, they're all equal in the Senate. That's the way it's, it's built that way. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Yeah, I mean, 17 people live in the state of Vermont. I mean, and, you know, one, <laughs> Bernie Sanders and his family are half of them. So, yeah, look, I, I have a I have a theory and uh, I want to bounce this off you and let me know if I'm, I might be way off base here. Uh, but I want to see if you agree or disagree. Uh, just going big picture for just a second. I think part of this divide on the right is caused by the fact that a lot of conservatives, not not a lot, some conservatives kind of still believe that once Trump is out of office, the party and the conservative movement more generally are just going to go back to where they were before. Yeah, one that's not going to happen because that's never happened in any area of life in the history of the world. Like that's just not how that's not how history works. I mean, like Ronald Reagan radically transformed the Republican Party when he was elected. Like it it never went back to a, a Richard Nixon Gerald Ford party. That just wasn't going to happen. That's just not that's not how these things work. And I'm not saying I want this like you know Trumpy party forever, and that's not going to happen either because that's not how it works either. Um, but we need to learn, in my opinion, from the, the certain things that Trump does do well, both electorally and on, on things like foreign policy, where I think he's been uh, extremely effective, you know, especially in regards to Israel. And so we need, to, we need to be learning from this Trump era and moving forward and building the party and the movement going forward. We can't just snap our fingers and go back. And even if we could just snap our fingers and go back, like a lot of people I think would like, uh, you know, to the party of Mitt Romney and John McCain, like, would we really want that? You know, I wouldn't because both those guys I, I got blown that... out. Both those guys got blown out because they were maligned and slandered by the press and the DNC. And they just didn't have the, the, the fight, the tenacity to punch back. Now, Trump misses with his punches a lot and ends up punching the little kids sitting in the front row. <laughs> OK, that's not good. I'm not advocating for that either. But the party is never going back to the way it was in 2012. And in some ways that might be bad. And in a lot of ways, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I, that could be a factor in the thinking of some of these folks. I, I think a uh, in the cases at least of of David and Jonah, I, I'm you know ninety some percent sure 
that they look at what the judicial Supreme Court nomination process has become. And they recoil in horror over what was done to Kavanaugh, over uh, what what we the, the, the path we are on. And right. they, they want to take the heat. They want to lower the heat. They want to take the air out of the balloon. They want not every one of these fights to turn into Ragnarok. Unfortunately, this is what happens when the Supreme Court becomes a super legislature. Yes. This is what happens when the Supreme Court can take the issue of, say, gay marriage and say, well, we know there are a lot of people who are strongly divided about this, but we've decided this issue for all of you. Gay marriage exists as a right, period. There's no all, all, all legislative bans, all legislative restrictions, everything else are white clean. We have decided what this is, what, you know, what the proper stance is. The John Roberts philosophy described in his confirmation hearing about the Supreme Court being an umpire. The job is to call balls and strikes. And the only decision before the court, when it's the way court cases, is, is does this law violate the Constitution or not? Very simple. It's not to chart the path for the country. Nope. It's not to impose a better vision upon the country. I, I'm thinking about, uh, I've been watching a lot about Ruth Bader Ginsburg since she passed away. And, I, you know, all these interviews and all these things. I believe simultaneously that it's very easy to see why people admire her. I think she's a very admirable person in her life story. But I also agree with my colleague, Kevin Williamson, who points out deep down, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wanted to be a legislator. Deep down, she had a vision of the way the country ought to be, and she saw her role as a judge to push America in that direction, using the law and using her status on the foundation's highest court as a way to do that. That's not really what the job of a judge is. And I think you can admire her. I think you love the way she kicked out the door for all kinds of women and all kinds of professions. I think you can love the way she, um, like, because she was this, you know, tiny, (laughs) quiet woman. I think people, you know, in, in terms of the way she spoke, you know, this made her that much louder. People got you know, it's like, yeah, huh. when she talks, people listen. Uh, there's a lot to admire there, but her basic sense of what the role of a judge is, is at odds with the way the, judge, the role of a judge has traditionally been defined. And it adds to this sense that each Supreme Court fight is worth, say, 10 sentences. And that's, you know, that's not what the court's supposed to be. But no. as long as the court has that kind of power, as long as they have the ability to wipe away all of these ongoing legislative fights with a 5-4 decision, then it's going to then all these fights are worth it. Why did the Democrats try to destroy Brett Kavanaugh? Because it was worth it to them, yeah. right? That's this is you know this is you know, so the simple answer is you know you know the same way people say oh you know, why is there so many lobbying? Well, people lobby because it's worth it, right? If you if you really want people to have less intense fights about you know the size of government, role of government, reduce the size and role of government. Yeah, and one more point. Going back to the first thing you said, that's kind of driving me crazy, and and I I understand it, and I I sympathize with it, and I'm not just trying to dig at Jonah Goldberg and David France, by the way. I have nothing but respect for both those guys. I've been reading Jonah's stuff since, I don't know, probably whenever liberal fascism came out. I, uh, I forget what year that was. A long time. Most of my adult life, I've, I've been reading his columns. So you know, I have nothing but respect for him. But it's like I, I understand the need. You're looking at the the vitriol in these confirmation battles and stuff. And man, we just need to take the, the pressure. You know, take the air out of it. You know, bring bring tensions down. But the thing is, it's not. It's only. <laughs> It's not coming from our side, Jim. It's not. Mm. I'm going back to yeah. Judge Bork, to Clarence Thomas, to filibustering Alito, to to obviously Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Like, we didn't do that. Republican senators didn't do that to Sonia Sotomayor or Elena mm-hmm. Kagan. Like, that's, it's not. This <laughs> isn't. It's like when Joe Biden denounced, you know, the violence in, on the streets on both sides when 
99.9% of the violence is coming from one side and it's people that are voting for him. You know, like it drives me crazy. Yes, there are some issues in American politics where both sides are equally at fault. This is not one of them. It's not. So this whole unilaterally disarming when when, when the other guys are the, are the culprits right now, it just it doesn't make any sense. Like it's like I get it. I get we want to take the temperature down a few notches. But the other side doesn't. Like the, the Democrats yeah. have they're not interested in bringing it down. So I, it it just seems like a flawed strategy from to begin with. Yeah, I'm very curious about who the liberal equivalent to Jonah Goldberg or David French is. I haven't seen it. Who's calling for a more conciliatory or less heated tone and, and approach on their side. Um, way back during, I think it was Sonia Sotomayor confirmation hearings. I had a chance to sit in with a bunch of uh, conservative organizations. I won't say which ones. I think it was supposed to be all in the background. Let's just say it rhymes with Schmetterlish Schmuschmiety. Um, <laughs> and and you know, they, this was kind of their war room, right? This was their, you know, they're monitoring the hearings and trying to get information to senators. They try to help the senators prepare for, you know, the questioning. They've, they've gone over every decision. She's, you know, and they, they, they knew, look, the, the Democrats held the Senate. There, there was really no way they were going to, uh, you know, bl- block the nomination of Sotomayor, right? They, they, just, they didn't have the votes. And so what they wanted to do was to make it as easy as possible for Republicans to vote now and to make it as difficult as possible for Democrats to vote yes, to spotlight every controversial decision, to spotlight her, you know, wise Latina comment, kind of the, the you know, that statement, which might have been a joke or might have been meant in jest, but kind of right. suggested that, you know, certain people, because of their gender and color of their skin or heritage, have better judgment than others, which I think, you know, even Sotomayor, you know, when she was uh, during the hearing, kind of cringed at how she realized how that could be interpreted. You know, what you want to do, you know, but at that point was it, at no point was it, you know, that they try to destroy Sotomayor's family or accuse her of real crimes or bring out witnesses out of the woodwork making up cockamamie stories. You know, it was, here's, okay, we're going to do what we can to say you're an extremist. Here's the, our basis for this based on the cases. And we know we're not going to win. You know, you could argue, but you know, this, we, with this, we're going we're to make the best case we can for why you don't belong on the court. And we know we're going to lose, and that's all right. It's nothing inherently injustice. You guys have the votes. We don't. That's why we're trying to win Senate races. Right. Democrats can't seem to do that, or at least I think they were close to doing that. And then somebody – because here's the other thing. You know, Kavanaugh was replacing Kennedy, who up, in, you know, up until the retirement of Senator Day O'Connor, Kennedy was seen as part of the conservative bloc. And then O'Connor retired, and Kennedy was seen as a swing vote. And you might argue he kind of grew into the role of the swing vote in his years, of course. Uh, you know, Kennedy retired, and now, of course, we're seeing some belief that John Roberts has now become the swing vote. This is the other thing which is bizarre about our the you know apocalyptic stakes of our Supreme Court fights. There's always a swing vote. And right. by the way, that, that swing vote is almost always nominated by a Republican. Right. <laughs> but it, it's one of those things where there's all you know. You could say the center of gravity on the court is shifting to the right, and maybe it is. But if it's if it's doing it, it's doing it fairly slowly because there's always at least one Republican nominated justice who doesn't want to be seen as a you know crazed right wing maniac like you know or or whatever uh, you know slurs are going to come their way. And so the idea that you know, oh you know this this there's this interesting belief that oh, this this is for all the marbles you know because. Because we've been on the verge of a 5-4 Republican majority for a very long time. You know, uh, Roberts was supposed to be it. And Kavanaugh, and then Kavanaugh was supposed to be it. Now, maybe this one will do it, and maybe you'll see them all being solid. And maybe it'll turn into something of a 6-3 majority. And that really would be a big deal. But uh, 
I, I'm yeah, not going to hold my breath. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I've never, I, just, I haven't seen it before in my lifetime, so I, I'm not going to hold my breath. But um, the president's announcing his nominee uh, Saturday afternoon at the White House. It's got to be Amy Coney Barrett. I, I, you know, all the indicators are there. It was certainly Las Vegas. The betting markets believe uh, mm-hmm. are, are giving Amy Barrett something like 80 uh, percent chance right now. Um, and actually, I, I actually pay attention to Vegas quite a bit. I don't know about you. <laughs> betting markets are typically a lot more accurate than polls, even, uh, which is kind of strange. Yeah. But from what I've read about Barrett, both now and back when she was considered in 2018, I like her. Um, I think she is a, a strict originalist. Um, she doesn't have a very long record, but from what I from what I can get my hands on, um, she seems pretty solid. I think this is the right move. Um, I think it's the right move, strictly for political reasons. To be honest with you, um, she is going to bait these Democratic senators into <laughs> insane demonstrations of extremism, of anti-Christian, anti-religious bigotry, of misogyny. <laughs> Uh, all on national television a month before an election. I think that's why the president would be right to nominate uh, uh, Barrett. I truly don't think Harris and the rest of these Democratic senators will be able to control themselves. I think they're going to take the bait. The mask is going to come off again, uh, and it's going to get ugly. And I think that's, politically speaking, I hate thinking about these things in terms of politics, but I don't know. I, I could see this being a big winner for the Trump campaign. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, so for what it's worth, everyone I'm hearing in Washington conservative legal circles is saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, all indications are it's going to be Barrett. Now, the thing is, I don't know if these people are genuinely hearing it from somebody in the White House or somebody in the uh, White House inner circle or or Grassley or somebody like that, or whether it's all these conservative legal minds all talking to each other. Right. Uh, I know. I know. (laughs) Kind of playing the telephone game. But certainly that is that is the buzz. That is that is the thing. Uh, Barbara Lagoa is supposed to meet with the president on Friday. The announcement is supposed to come Saturday. There are some people who think that uh, Lagoa has this very warm, uh, engaging personality. And the thinking is, is that, you know, if if Trump is always influenced the most by the last person he speaks to, that this could be, you know, this could be a bit of a surprise. This could, could, you know, have Trump go in the other direction. You know, it's worth noting that Trump had like 40 some names on his list of potential Supreme Court justices, but it's really focusing on these two women. I I think you are correct that in, in many ways, you notice the coverage is almost acting as if Amy Coney Barrett is is the uh, is the pick now. Uh, that 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 basically it's you know they're already, the attacks on her have already started, the defenses of her have already started. Um, in a way, the announcement might almost be moved, which by the way might for Trump might be some sort of you know he might want to zig when everybody else thinks he's going to zag. Uh, I, I think the assessment is correct. The other thing is, is from Florida. I can see the argument of somebody saying to the president, ah, oh, you know you pick a Cuban American judge from Florida, this will help you in the election in November. I suppose that could be the case. A lot of that. Catholics. There's a lot of Catholics in in Michigan and in Wisconsin yeah, and, and, and Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania especially. And I think they're going to dial up the anti-Catholic <laughs> bigotry pretty hard uh, during this this hearing if it is Barrett. So I, I politically, I could see it playing out well for yeah, Trump in, in either scenario. Barrett does do as much good. Yeah, I, I think I I don't think this is the way you ought to be thinking about this. I think this is a uh, you know the, you, you pick the best judge. Of course. Election, they're both really good. Uh, you know, I think you may see a point of because the the anti-Catholic vitriol towards Barrett has already started. Then maybe you want to put this before the country and say, "This is what the Democrats think of people of faith. This is what Democrats feel about you." Right. Um, 
and you know, it also kind of demonstrate they learned nothing from Kavanaugh. That they, you know, to them Kavanaugh was a win. To them Kavanaugh was good government standing up to their values and doing their roles they're supposed to. So, uh, you know, I, I again, if I had to guess now, I think it's going to be Barrett, and I think it would be an ugly fight. But, you know, one, if you're, if you're trying to persuade Mitt Romney, vicious attacks on religious faith, not going <laughs> to no. work, guys. No, and it, well, that's that's where I wanted to end is on Senator Mitt Romney. Uh, before I let you go, Jim, I, he he said he is on board to to take a look at at Trump's mm-hmm. nominee, and if he believes the the person's qualified, he'll vote for it. I'm glad to see uh, Romney on the right side of this. Um, you know, a lot of people thought that he he may you know go orange man bad on us or something, which you know he doesn't. I I figured Romney would handle this with with class and and with you know and would fulfill his constitutional duties. But, and this isn't the reason why, but I'll, I got to be honest with you, Jim, as soon as I read that, that he was on board, I thought, man, uh, you know, in retrospect, maybe Joe Biden shouldn't have accused him of being a neo-Nazi uh, who wants to enslave <laughs> black <laughs> Americans. It, it's not, yeah. even, <laughs> not even specifically yeah. to Biden. This is just a lesson kids for everybody listening back home. Don't accuse somebody erroneously of Nazism. If you might need their help later. I think that's just a life lesson we can all live by. And by the way, you know, this might apply to the Trump administration and how vehemently they criticized Romney on his vote of impeachment. You can't be right for being angry about it, but you never know when t- t- today the person who really irked you really drove you crazy. You might need their help the next day, particularly in Washington. Um, I don't subscribe to the idea. Like I think Romney looks at every issue as it is, you know, follows his, uh, his beliefs, his principles, his heart, his idea of what's right for his state, what's right for the country. And he votes. I think if he voted to impeach President Trump, I think he believes that Trump really did what he was supposed to do, that that constituted an impeachable offense worthy of removal from office. Uh, there's a this mentality of, of this reducing everything that Trump is either that, oh, Romney's doing this because he hates Trump or Romney's doing this because he's sucking up to Trump. You know, I think each one of these votes kind of refutes the other, that if Romney was some sort of craven, spineless suck up to Trump, he wouldn't have voted to remove him from office. And of course, <laughs> Romney is this, you know, orange man, bad, you know, left wing rhino squish, the reincarnation of Arlen Specter. And, you know, well, well, no, then he would not have voted to move forward with this. I think Mitt Romney looked at this, decided the Constitution puts no limits on, on when, when the Senate can or should evaluate a judge for the Supreme Court or a nominee for the Supreme Court. And he decided to go forward with it. I don't think Mitt Romney is a guarantee to vote for the nominee, but I think he's very likely to vote for the nominee. I think, you know, barring some terrible revelation about the nominee, Romney's likely to be a yes. You know, if you have 50 votes, then this this, this Supreme Court nominee is going to go forward and going to get confirmed. So, yeah, you know, I agree. I agree with you. And Mitt Romney is, you know, 75 years old and he has something like 300 million dollars. So he doesn't he doesn't need yes. he doesn't need he's not angling for an no. MSNBC gig, you know. No, and the the people that that were hoping the people on the left that, that were hoping that he would just you know that would just go he would just go orange man bad uh, in the Supreme Court nomination process seemed to forget that he was on the business end of the the <laughs> the the DNC slander machine in 2012. So I mean it's not like he doesn't still hold some ill will towards you know. The, the Biden camp from from the, the way he was completely slandered and maligned in, in 2012. They came after him extraordinarily hard. So it's not like and so did Trump, but it's not like the, the Democrats were innocent in 2012 or anything like that. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, Jim. I know I, I kept you over time again, as I always do. <laughs> but where can everybody follow you and read your stuff? Where can everybody subscribe to The Morning Jolt and check out the Three Martini Lunch and all that good stuff? 
Sure. Uh, Three Martini Lunch is on Ricochet and is downloadable to all of your subscriber-based podcast, uh, uh, you know, platforms. Uh, I write for National Review. The Morning Jolt is available at Morning Jolt at National Review forward slash uh, newsletters, I believe, or just Google National Review Morning Jolt. You'll get there. Uh, I write in the corner pretty regularly. I also contribute to the Editor's Podcast, and I'm on Twitter at Jim Garrity. J-I-M-G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. And no to that one respondent out there. That is not an alias. If this was an alias, do you think I'd pick something that hard to spell? (laughs) Fair enough. Everybody follow Jim and everybody uh, subscribe to the Morning Jolt immediately. You will not regret it. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.